Acts chapter 7, verses uh, 30 to 34, God's word says this. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him, the him in this passage is Moses, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of a, a fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. There is a lot in... Exodus chapter 3 to unpack. We're not going to say everything there is to say about this passage this morning. I'm just letting you know. You may leave here and say, hey, Keith didn't say anything about this part or this part. We're going to leave a little bit on the table so that we can get the big picture of the story of Exodus. And one of the big pictures that we see in Exodus is our main idea for this morning, which is this. Our main idea is an unignorable God calls Moses. An unignorable God calls Moses. Some of you English majors and scholars in here might say, I don't know if I've ever heard that word unignorable before. It might be made up. I know in in my pages document it was underlined in red, but that's the way we want to say it this morning. God is unignorable, okay? And an unignorable God calls Moses. Before we dive into chapter 3 of Exodus, we must remember what has preceded this passage, which is back in chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, if you'll recall, uh, the Israelites are enslaved and they're crying out to God. And it says this, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And then we enter into chapter 3. The comment at the end of of chapter 2 leads back into the story of Moses. So in in chapter 2, we had Moses, Moses is made known, and then there's a pause at the end of chapter 2 where God hears the, the cry of his people, and then now we're brought back into the story of Moses. Remember the background. He has run away from Egypt after killing the Egyptian slave driver, and he's now in the land of Midian, and that's where we pick up the story In verses 1 to 3, back now in Exodus chapter 3, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning. Hear this, yet it was not consumed, so it was on fire, but it wasn't turning to ash and rubble. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Interesting comment, right? If you saw a bush burning that didn't burn down, wouldn't you want to go see what's going on over there? Let me see what's what's happening in this bush. An unignorable God calls Moses. You can't miss a bush that burns but is not consumed. Moses must go and see this sight, right? I have to see what's going on in this thing. 
There are a lot of theological and doctrinal points that we can draw out of this passage this morning. We're going to hit on a few of those. This passage is going to give us some insight into who God is, some of his attributes. One thing is clear, though. Only the creator God, a God who created through his spoken word, he spoke things into existence, he holds all things together. Only the creator God can control his creation in a way that he can be present in a bush, a created thing. The bush is on fire, yet it doesn't burn up. It has to be from God. And I believe that this actually happened. I don't believe it's some sort of metaphor or some sort of hologram. This bush was actually on fire and the angel of the Lord was there and God was present in that bush. And the bottom line is, is that when God wants your attention, he's going to get it. He's unignorable. Have you been there before church? As all of you know, because I've used illustrations from my move over the past two years, I didn't grow up in Kentucky. I grew up in Southern California, and our weather is a little bit more mild out there, to say the least. Now, we moved in the end of March, early April 2019, a time of the year in Kentucky where you have cool air that comes out of the north, and you have warm, humid air that comes out of the south, and it kind of clashes over the top of this area in the middle of the country. And what happens, I believe, is that these, these two temperatures kind of rub together and they create these enormous clouds that emit these gigantic electric lightning bolts out of them, with which they're partnered with what? A thunderclap, Right? Now, I'm going to tell you that, uh, that I was sitting out on my front porch one day. I mean, thunderstorms are neat, but they're not neat when they're up close. They're scary. And so I'm sitting on the front porch, and, and about one street over, I see this lightning bolt come shooting through. And as I'm saying, that's neat. This crack emerges in the sky... The heavens open in the loudest thunderclap that you'd ever... My heart stopped for a second. And just like Moses fell on his face before God, I might have fallen on the front porch and cried out to God. Kentucky thunder is going to get your attention, isn't it? Especially when it hits right on the next street over. But I also noticed that those who have been here for a while, they're just kind of used to it. I know this past week I was sitting in the office and one of those storms came through. I was, I was here by myself in the morning a little bit before everybody else came in. And there was, again, another one of those lightning bolts. I saw it out of the corner of my eye come down. It probably hit Preston Highway out here. And then immediately after this was the thunderclap, which knocked me back in my chair. And the whole building rumbled for what seemed like a minute, probably about two seconds. But it seemed like an eternity. To which I, I mentioned to one of my co-workers that came in, did you hear that thunder? And she replied, I don't know what you're talking about. Just <laughs> kind of get used to it. I don't know if I ever will. It stops my heart every single time. One of the things that I hope, though, 
is that we never get used to being confronted with our unignorable God. That, that every time we encounter him, he knocks us back in our seat a little bit in awe. He hits us in a good way. One of my hopes for our church, as we look at this unignorable God, is that this particular church, this local church, and, and my prayer is for, for all churches that preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are places that make God unignorable to our communities. When people encounter our members here at North Bullet Christian Church, out in public places, or here in our church when they walk in, that God will be unignorable in the lives of the followers that are committed to coming here. That the light of Christ shines so bright in compassion and love and humility that that people know that there's something different about those folks that go to North Bullet. Jesus is doing something there. God is unignorable in that place. That is my hope and prayer. Church, that we would make Jesus unignorable to our community. Just like God in this passage is unignorable to Moses. Moses can't help but walk over and see what's going on. Let our church be that kind of place. That people that encounter our members, they can't help but come and see what's going on over at that place. God's doing a work. And so we draw three points from this passage this morning. Point number one, confronted by the holiness of God. Moses is confronted by the holiness of God. Exodus 3, 4 to 6, if you look to your notes or to the screens, it says, when the, the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses is confronted by the holiness of God here. The journey of of meeting God is one where, church, we must be confronted by his holiness. Or his... His, maybe that word doesn't, doesn't compute in your brain. His, his otherness. His, he is set apart. The original word here literally means to cut off or separate. This attribute of holiness speaks to the transcendence of God. And you might say, I have no idea what transcendence means. God is transcendent. When I use the word transcendence, I mean the greatness of God. How big God is. He's out there and we're down here. That's the picture we get as Moses encounters God in this bush that burns but is not consumed. I want you to think of of the distance between God and us. We begin there. We begin with being confronted with the holiness of God. And God's holiness is is his attribute in which all of his other attributes flow from. Everything flows from the holiness of God. His holiness is his essence. 
It's who He is. God is holy. And when I say that God's attributes flow from His holiness, I mean that He is, as one of my favorite pastors, Paul David Tripp, puts it, he says this, and I quote, He is holy in justice. He is holy in love. He is holy in mercy. He is holy in power. He is holy in sovereignty. He is holy in wisdom. He is holy in grace. He is holy in faithfulness. He is holy in compassion. And hear this, He's even holy in His holiness. Say what? I think the prophet Isaiah captures this perfectly in Isaiah chapter 6. That he's even holy in his holiness. He says this, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. I want to pause there for a second. The seraphim are not distant from God. They're not sinful. And yet, in the presence of God, it says, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. In the presence of God, the perfect seraphim covered their face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And then it says, and one called to another and said, hear this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at this, the foundations of the, of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, now this is Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, confronted with the holiness of of God. My hope is, church, that each of us are confronted with the holiness of God because then we will see the depth of distance that we have from Him. God is even holy in His holiness. According to the prophet Isaiah, He witnessed the seraphim with covered faces calling out three times what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He's not once holy, he's not only twice holy, but he's thrice holy. And I'm excited because I got to use that word in a sermon. In other words, he's, he's holy in his holiness. He's perfectly holy because he's three times holy. And what is the reaction of someone who's confronted by the holiness of God? They fall on their face before him. Moses takes his sandals off and hides his face from God. May God make his holiness unignorable to you, that you may fall face first before our holy God. That's the best position for you to be in. To know, God, you are so great, I bow before you. I worship you. And that we would, in our walk with Christ, we wouldn't be numb to the thunderclap, but over and over and over again, God would bring us to our knees before him. That we wouldn't take God lightly. That we wouldn't take this attribute lightly. 
Even the perfect seraphim covered their face before a holy God. But hear this also, our second point. Moses is confronted by the goodness of God. Moses is confronted by the goodness of God. I want you to get your pen out handy or your highlighter and either underline in your notes or in your Bible as we go through this next section. Verses 7 to 9 in Exodus 3, it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen, I want you to underline that, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard, I want you to underline that, heard their cry because of their taskmasters, I know their sufferings, and I have, this is the last one I want you to underline, I have come down. I have come down to deliver them out of, the, out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. The goodness of God begins actually in our last point. He is holy, and in his compassion for Moses and the purpose of his plan to to deliver his people through Moses, he saves Moses from coming too close to the bush. Because here's the bottom line. You come too close to the holiness of God without the proper covering or protection, you're going to get burned up. God says, hold up a second, Moses. Take off your Birkenstocks. You're standing on holy ground. God's goodness is even evident now as he converses with Moses. He sees the affliction of his people. He hears their cry, and he's come down to deliver them. And bring them to a great land. Remember this. God sees. God hears. God comes down. God gives. We have those same promises. Through Jesus. God sees. God hears. God comes down. God gives. And so when God feels distant to you. Remember that. He sees, he hears, he comes down, he gives. Notice that all of this flows from God. It's God that sees. It's God that hears. It's God that comes down. It's God that gives. Every good gift that we have is from our Father. In his holiness... Now, we're talking about this great God, this transcendent God... In his holiness, he does not keep his distance. But he comes near to his people. Again, we spoke of God's transcendence in in the last point. That is his greatness or his distance from us. But here we see that God is also imminent, okay? Imminent means that he is near to us. God is close and involved in his creation. God is not distant. He's both transcendent and imminent. He's both of those things. 
And in this passage, we have the gospel of the Old Testament. And hopefully within it, you see the gospel of Jesus in type and shadow. In his dealings with Israel, he saw their affliction, he heard their cry, he came down to deliver his people through Moses. God has always seen the affliction of his people. Apart from him, church, we are lost and hopeless and under the wrath of a holy God, enslaved to our sin. And yet he hears the cry of our heart. That we realize that something isn't right. Even somebody who is in unbelief can look around the world and say, there's just something that's not right about this place. Not only within us, but also all around us, look around the world. Something's just not right. Do we agree with that? The world's not functioning the way that it should. I'll ask this question. Have you ever been sinned against? Have you felt that? Have you ever been lied to or mistreated, misunderstood, abused? Have you ever been sinned against? Ultimately, God comes down in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see a picture of this in the deliverer Moses. But the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan is in the person and work of Jesus. God in the flesh, walking among his people. He lived in perfection, and he went to the cross and died in our place as as a substitute Jesus substituted himself for us. And he went into the grave, but on the third day, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And he ascended to his throne, that those who place their faith and trust in his work will be saved and are promised paradise, just as the Israelites were. They're promised a land flowing with milk and honey. We are promised this, to live in eternity with God in the new heavens and new earth. That's what scripture teaches us. Back to Moses. He's been confronted by the holiness of God, which brings him face first into the dust. He's confronted by the goodness of God, that flowing from God's holiness. He is loving and caring and compassionate. Therefore, Moses is being called to something beyond what he is capable of doing. Deliver God's people from the tyranny and enslavement of Pharaoh brings us to our third point, confronted by the calling and promise of God. Confronted by the calling and promise of God. Look in Exodus chapter 3. We're going to cover a big section, 10 to 22. It says this, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, hear this, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. I want you to remember this part. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? 
God said to Moses, hear this, I am who I am. And he said this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am remembered throughout all generations that he would call, be called Lord. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I, observe, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now let us, now let, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And then God says this, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of Egypt of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of, their, of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Here, Moses is confronted by the calling and promise of God. There's a ton here in this passage. We're not getting to everything this morning. But here's the bottom line. God doesn't just leave Moses on his face before him. God doesn't just go about seeing and hearing the affliction of his people. He lifts up Moses and calls him to something greater than he is capable of. That's what God's doing here. He's working through an ordinary man to do extraordinary things. And we're already hearing the, the excuses from Moses. We'll get into more of those excuses next week in chapter 4. Moses is like, who should I tell them sent me? Again, the excuses and self-doubt will really be evident in chapter 4. But Christian, have you been there when God is calling you to do something? And you say, God, you want me to do what? And just reflect on, on Moses' reputation. Because some of us, myself included, might say, God, do you really know what's going on inside my heart? Do you really know the thoughts that are going through my head? Do you know the stuff I've done? Do you know the road I've traveled? Listen to the road that Moses has traveled. Reflect on Moses' reputation among his people. He killed an Egyptian. His brethren know of this. The ones that he's supposed to go and deliver... They basically mocked him the last time he tried to intervene in their affairs. You guys recall that? And then Moses runs away. He's, he's like America's most wanted right now. He's wandering out in Midian. And now, 40 years later, he's going to come back and deliver his people. In reality, it's evidence that God gives you more than you can handle. We hear that saying, like, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. But yeah, he does. Trust me, I know. You want to know why? 
Because God wants you to rely on him. He wants to be, you to be humbled before him. And so, sometimes, oftentimes in life, God's going to give you more than you can handle so that you will fall on your face before him. And that when that is accomplished, the only person that gets glory is God because he brought it to pass. He even promises Moses here, I will what? Be with you. Because he knows Moses is in over his head. If Moses just walks on his own, we saw what happened last week. When he tried to walk on his own, he killed somebody. And then he had to flee and go out in the desert. But here God says, now is the time for you to act and I will be with you. Moses is confronted with his calling by God. And he's also given a promise here. We witness early on here that God is clear on the inheritance that his people will receive. A promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, if you notice back in verse 12, that was one of the ones that I said, remember this. God said the sign that he will give Moses. Listen to the order here. This this is interesting. He says, this is the sign that I will give you. He says, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's an interesting sign, isn't it? To have when you're going in to deliver your people, that the sign's going to be that you're actually going to be able to accomplish this. Notice the sign is what will occur after God's deliverance and Moses' obedience. Now Moses has to walk in obedience to what God has called him to do. And so, I want you to think about this. What does it take for Moses to embrace the sign that God has promised? Because the sign is going to happen after everything is accomplished. What does it take? Faith. It takes faith to say, God, I believe that the sign that you will give me is going to be after everything's accomplished. It's why the author of Hebrews says this at the beginning of chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Moses had to place his faith into the promises of God and be obedient and walk in his calling. Moses must have faith that the great I am, that's, how, that's what God refers to himself as, I am, keeps his promises. That he is true to his word. Therefore, the sign that he receives is one that will be cashed in after he's obedient to the Lord, after he walks in faith. God says to Moses, I am calling you, I am with you, and I promise you, have faith. Have faith that I am who I am is with you in all of this. And so what does this mean to us? One, we can look back at redemptive history and we know, the beauty is we know the ending to the story. We know that Moses accomplished this, didn't he? that eventually he's going to end up right back on this mountain again, receiving the law from God. That his people are delivered. 
that they do eventually walk into that promised land. What does it mean to us? A few things, and then we'll get into our final point. It points to the greater redemptive storyline, which is the deliverance of God's people from the enslavement of sin and the promise of the new creation. And number two, now application for us. We can also place ourselves in Moses' sandalless feet right here in this moment with him. Here's the takeaway that I want you to have this morning. It's our last point. An unignorable God calls you, Christian, into saving relationship. And, okay, it doesn't just stop there. It's not just a ticket to heaven. He calls you into saving relationship. So he saves you through Jesus Christ. And he's called you to serve his purpose. To walk in obedience to his commands. To what he's called you to. I believe Paul captures this well in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. And anytime I can say verse 17 in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in a public gathering, I'm going to because it's one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. An unignorable God calls you into saving relationship and to serve his purpose. This is now after Christ has come. He's lived the perfect life. He's died on the cross. He's resurrected. He's ascended. He has set forth apostles to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is one of those who is one of the greatest missionaries that has ever lived. And he's writing a letter to a church, the Corinthian church. And he says this good news to them. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Church, you you are new in Christ. So you're saved. He goes on to say this, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That's good news. And did this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you see saving here and then setting forth for a purpose? Okay, our salvation is not just about fire insurance from hell. It's about a new life in Christ. It's about being new creations. And it's about seeing that new creation burst forth into this broken old creation. So he says he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, he's going to define it. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What is that message? The gospel. Christian, God has saved you through the precious blood of Jesus. And he has given you new life. You are, as Paul says it, a new creation in Christ. He's not only saved you, but has called you and set you forth on a new calling, a new vocation, a new job. That wherever you are, here's your job, that you're a light in the darkness. Paul says that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That just as Moses eventually will go forth and herald the good news of God's deliverance, we too are to go forth and herald the good news of Jesus' deliverance of sinners. That's the ministry of reconciliation. 
That we're not only saved, but we're given a purpose. We're set forth on mission with God. And the unignorable God calls you into saving relationship and to serve his purpose. We were slaves to sin. Now we're slaves to Christ and his purpose. Serving out his purpose of reconciliation within the world. Wherever you are. Are. It all matters. There's no sacred secular divide. My job is not more important than your job. Everything is sacred to God. Fathers, mothers, carpenters, retail associates, retired folks, salesmen, real estate agents. Wherever you are, God has you there for a purpose. Your vocation is sacred, that you would be a light in those dark places. Living in light of the work of Christ. Wherever you are, Christian, it all matters. And God has saved you for this purpose, that we would be a light in the dark.